Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Fronda. Today on the show, we have Richard Bresler. Richard is a six-degree jiu-jitsu black belt and the author of the book, Worth Defending. Richard is widely recognized as the first American student of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu and worked closely with Horian Gracie for almost 20 years. He played an essential role in growing jiu-jitsu through the Gracie Garages, the Gracie Academy, and the early days of the UFC. Richard was also one of the first Americans to earn a teaching certificate through the original instructor certification program at the Gracie Academy and to earn a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. In our conversation, Richard shares his experience of learning from the Gracie family and his passion for Jiu-Jitsu. We dive deep into his book, Worth Defending, which tells the story of his 40-plus year involvement with the Gracie family. So if you're a fan of Jiu-Jitsu or looking to start your journey in this beautiful martial art, stay tuned and let's get started with our latest episode of Forever White Belt. Just a reminder, please give us a five-star review on Apple Music and Spotify and share this podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. Please leave us feedback and suggestions on how we can improve the show and become a VIP member for only 99 cents a month. Yes, less than a dollar. Get ad-free episodes at anchor.fm forward slash forever white belt forward slash subscribe. Like us on Facebook and TikTok at forever white belt and check us out on Instagram at forever white belt show. Go buy your forever white belt swag at teespring, teespring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. Check us out on YouTube now at forever white belt. Finally, if you ever get to beautiful Northern California, please come roll with us at North Bay Jiu-Jitsu in Marin County, just north of San Francisco. They're amazing instructors, and everyone there are great people. Mention the podcast and get two weeks free. And with that, I give you Richard Bresler. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. So, wow, what a what a background, what a journey that you have. Are you a, correct me if I'm wrong, is it sixth degree black belt? Yes. And is it in your black belt is under who? Fabio originally gave it to me, and ah. then and then I also got a black belt from Hori and about okay. uh, 10 or 12 years later. And when you say Fabio, can you clarify for the listeners, Fabio who? Fabio Santos. He's either a black belt under Hickson or Halls. So your jiu-jitsu started because of a mattress. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, American I... jiu-jitsu started uh, because of a mattress. <laughs> Is that how we can sum this whole thing up? Yeah, it started because I had a... Uh... A mattress, an extra mattress, and I, I happened to sell it, and Bory and Gracie just happened to need a mattress at the time. That's when the whole, my journey began. Well, I know that you had a deep love for the fast food business, correct? <laughs> you know, I did when I was a kid. And, I mean, look, I didn't just have a love for it. I, I got to have a burger and fries and a Coke anytime I wanted it. I mean, I, I had my own dispenser at work. I mean, you were born into it, kind of, right? Yeah, I was born into it. Well, my father was part of a, a uh, conglomerate that was in the Midwest, most likely based out of Chicago, Bressler's Ice Cream. And then Henry's Drive-Ins were a kind of like the competition at one time for McDonald's that my dad opened a bunch across the Midwest. So my dad was in the fast food business then, and when he left his brothers, he came out here and he stayed in the fast food business. All joking aside, you weren't terribly enthralled with uh, being so immersed into that business because you found it more as sort of a transactional uh, sort of uh, relationship with individuals, right? As opposed to like something more. For most people, not all of a person chooses this for a career, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, that's that's their, their path. But since I started in it when I was about maybe nine or 10 years old, by the time I was 16, you know, I was already a, a seasoned, I worked every position in the place. I cleaned the drains, I worked the grill, I did the fryer, I worked the window. I mean, I, I knew how to do everything. And, and it was cool then. I mean, I really enjoyed that because, you know, being the boss's son was good. And then as I got older, you know, maybe even 18, 19 years old, I kind of managed the place for a little bit. And then after a while, just working with my dad, who was super critical, trying to make things perfect. And after a while, I went like, I didn't feel any interaction with the customers. And it was just because people come in that all they want to do is they want their hamburger, french fries and a Coke, and they want to move on. And, and 
you being part of the business, you have to you have to go. Yeah, okay, next, next, next. We're trying to, you know, occasionally you'd see somebody. I'd see a cute girl. I'd say hi, how are you? And but you still couldn't get much time with them at the register. So I started to kind of go like, okay, like what's what's the the long range goal? What's the where am I going from here? So then, what? Uh, Ten, nineteen years later, you stumble onto Horion, right? Just before my 28th birthday, so I was 27. So then you meet Horion. He does his, hey, do you want to try some uh, jujitsu stuff that he was so famous for early on, right? You want to try this self-defense stuff out uh, from this champion family that no one believed because no one knew, you know, what jujitsu was or... Everything yeah. back then was karate or kung fu kumites. or whatever. Yeah, kung yeah. fu, right? Yeah. So you know, when he asked me if I had any experience, you know, I I told him I you know I boxed a little bit, and you know, I mean, I just didn't want to sound like I knew nothing. And uh, and then when he told me about his family, you know, like I said, the first I've said before, the first thing I thought it was like, yeah, sure, you're you come from this family of champions, and yet you're trying to get the most out of a out of this deal to get some extra sheets for your bed and I just figured if they were that successful they they had money you know that's my own personal judgment anyway so I came over went over to his place and uh, and took a class and I went wow this is amazing I know that you've spoken before of like having a life of, of service I mean, and I'm paraphrasing here and, and why you love you went from like the fast food business to the jujitsu business, for lack of a better description. Do you think this is inherent in most people? This sort of like, you know, one of the things I see oftentimes are white, some white belts that want to teach other white belts, right? Who've just learned a little bit more than the other white belt. And I often wonder, you know, why, why are they doing this? But then you realize that it makes you feel really good to be able to help someone else, right? With Even if it's a little kernel of, you know, a little bit more than someone, or you can help someone. It makes you feel really good. Oh, yeah. Did you have that differential sort of feeling from, like, to say, the fast food business to instructing? Well, you know, one of the things that, that I was good at, and I didn't even realize it back then, but since I had done every single job in the fast food business, when I was in charge, I was training the other people to do the thing, which didn't take much training back then. I mean, look, it, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to work a grill. You turn the grill up to 350, whatever, and you flip a hamburger when you, you know, at a certain time, and, and you, you, you know, take a little spatula and you cut it to see if it's done or not, and, and you pull the burger, you know, right. you, whatever it is, it's, you know, to clean a drain. I mean, it's, you know, to filter out shortening, whatever it is, it doesn't take much. But I was good at showing others what to do. Hmm. But this was a whole new thing. So when I learned this. You know, one of the things that Horian told me to do, too, he says, early on, he said, don't show your your friends or whatever. And I said, why? And he says, because it's, and it's, and I understand, because a lot of times I'll see other people, I'll do a move in class, and they'll start to do the move, and then the other, the new student says, well, what if they do this? And then they start going into more, and I see them going like, oh, gosh. So what he was saying don't correct a mistake, just start on a raw slate. Show them the right way the first time. So, you know, and that, and I'll kind of do that, but you can't stop. I mean, people wanna, they wanna share this thing that, that they uh, discovered. I understand it. But that's what makes me want to keep sharing it because I have a gift for it. Yeah, I remember you mentioning uh, somewhere where I think you you were actually showing back in the day someone some he's like I could choke you with your I think it was a sweatshirt or something a like towel. that <laughs> a towel. Can you describe that story? I went over to my parents' house, and uh, my brother and his friend are hanging out together, and I was telling them I'm doing this new martial art called jujitsu, and you know, and they're like, you know, because they were both kind of in a striking. I think Tung Soo Do. And I right. said, yeah, I can, I can basically take this beach towel, it's the summertime, and throw it around your neck and choke you with it. And he goes, yeah, right. So I took the thing, I flung it around his neck, and, I, and he goes, whoa. And he immediately says, well, where do I learn this? So, you know, my brother didn't really do it, but his friend 
you know, went over and he actually was my training partner for a few years. What was that like to be, you know, to see the the birth of jiu-jitsu in the U.S. Uh, prior to those UFC years, you know, to the beginning of the UFC? Because, I mean, you mentioned Tung Soo Do. That's all we had, right, in the early days was Black Belt Magazine, and we'd see all these things, and no one knew, you know, uh, what would win what, or what was real and what wasn't real. And you saw the the sprouting of it within this country anyways. What What was that time like, that incubation period? Oh, gosh, you know, I, I feel like my life, I've happened to meet people that were instrumental in change. And Horian was just one of them, probably the most that had the biggest profound change in me. And you are like the Forrest Gump of Jiu-Jitsu. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a compliment or not. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, people have called me, you know, student zero, patient zero. I mean, the, the <laughs> yeah. where, because I had come from such a, let's say there was a lot of imbalances in me as a person just because of my drug uses, mm -hmm. that when I discovered this, I was excited about it. And I wanted mm -hmm. to share this with everybody. So I'd get a little crazy about talking to people like, oh yeah, you know, people talk, oh, karate and this, and I'm going like, wait a sec, this would, you know, I said, my teacher, if he, if he fought Bruce Lee, he would probably destroy the guy. I'm like, come on, Richard, you know, what? You know, mm -hmm. you know, it's so I would always be excited. I'd always want to bring somebody down, you know, and, you know, occasionally I'd bring him down and they'd, they'd be convinced and they'd sign up or they'd walk away going that he was lucky. But just to yeah, see sure. this, this thing happening, it, it's amazing how it just kind of started blossoming because I'd be excited about it. I'd tell somebody, and then they'd tell somebody. And Horian always offered their student a free class if you brought someone else in, if they wow. if they start taking classes. And so it, it all of a sudden you'd start to see this in in 1980 when Horian and I became roommates. I'd start to see more and more and more, you know, his schedule filling up. And I was fortunate enough to help him with, you know, because I lived there. If he said, hey, do you want to help out with this class? I'm like, put my gi and I'm downstairs. Wow. And just just to watch it, I mean, it was, it, it was, it's hard to describe how it was just growing and blossoming. Wow. Was it like a slow sort of burn or was it like a hockey stick type of, you know, graph? I mean, no one knew what jujitsu was, so I mean, it was it was. This is very, all word of mouth, right? Yeah, it was all word of mouth. So it was very. It was kind of slow because remember, the only place that you could really in Southern California learn jujitsu was Horian's, was our garage. Yeah. So, how big can it get there? Even though he had a cousin that technically was here before Horian, mm -hmm. up in San Francisco area, mm -hmm. no one ever heard of the guy. You know, because someone would someone heard of my story or whatever, and they sent me a message going, "So I forgot the guy's name. I forgot, you know, maybe it was Carly Gracie or something." They said, "Oh, he was up here, and and someone learned before you." And I'm like, "Okay, but no one heard of this. Yeah. I mean, so he wasn't doing anything. He didn't have the the maybe the mindset that Horian did and the mm -hmm. professionalism and." pulling more people in to, to do this, to, to come over and take a class. You mentioned, you touched upon your using. Um, we should probably clarify for the listeners, if I didn't in the intro already, that Richard, how would you say you were, you were, you are a drug addict? How do you describe yourself as, in terms of that sort of subject? I wouldn't even call myself an addict. I was a, a user a of, user. Okay. of uh, I mean, I used regularly for a couple of years cocaine and quaaludes and mm -hmm. and I smoked pot for probably gosh maybe a good seven or eight years mm -hmm. you know regularly and then toward you know right before I met Hori and you know the my usage of cocaine and quaaludes were starting to become pretty regular cocaine okay. every day and then when i could get quaaludes you know wow you know an addict's a strong word it, you know i was a functional user for the most part 
you know, I'd go with the people who were really close to me. They could see how I was in a self-destructive mode for a while. It's interesting that you mentioned Horian as a professional because he was the way he interacted with you. Probably, you know, you guys are roommates, so he he knew about your usage or whatever, right? Oh yeah. And and for the all the other different personality types that he was talking into doing this unknown thing for these for these people he would have to probably adapt to different people really quickly and that that takes a certain type of talent to market to each individual like that well horian was i mean when i met horian's just a couple months younger than i am so when i met him you know he'd already been teaching since he was probably about 16 years old so you know he'd probably already been a teacher for 10 years in Brazil, so when he got here, and because the great the the Elio side of the family, Horian's side of the family, were focused on teaching private classes, where Carlos's right. side of the family was kind of like more of a group type thing, and so they were used to dealing with um, sometimes like more professional type people. So and and Horian, you know, he had interesting philosophy to not focus on i never got a lecture saying like hey don't do drugs they're not good for you Mm -hmm. it's just here here's what is good for you and focus on that and he never made me feel bad because of the choices that i was making Mm -hmm. you know it's interesting you bring up the privates wasn't there some sort of uh path to blue like x amount of privates and then you're sort of belted yeah I, it was 40 half-hour classes. That's 20 hours, hours of private right. instruction. And, and he says, then you're not really, a, you're not a beginner anymore. Then you know, your path begins. Because when I got to Blue Belt, I was like, what? I? And he goes, Richard, you're three times more effective now than you were when you came in. He said, but this is where it, you know, this is where it starts. You're not a beginner. You're a novice. And then I real, and then I stayed a blue belt for six years. So, you know, it was it was a path because remember there wasn't a lot of wasn't a lot of people to train with in those first couple years. When you were training with other individuals, what was that like? A lot of it was just um, situational training at first. You know, putting us like past the guy's guard and then stop or whatever. We didn't really start doing a lot of training. You know, it's hard to really remember. And then after a while, we'd we'd have like certain things. But you know, during classes, he he'd have like I'd help out with a class, or maybe the guy would come in to my class waiting for his class, and he'd say, "Okay, see if you can pass Richard's guard." Okay, Richard, you do this, and you know, stop him from passing your guard, or you do this, just so we can practice a move. But after a while, Sunday morning, we had like a small little group of us that we had like a a two-hour, you know, sparring class where we'd work on different things. We'd work on headlocks, escapes, or or different types of things. There's maybe six or eight of us. So many people portray the early days of jujitsu as this like scrap. Right, and and this what you're describing sounds like an intelligent type of training situation, with situational sparring and this type of thing. Well, it's, that's because of Horian. I mean, Horian really had a, a a method to what he was doing. He definitely had things planned out, and that's and that's one of the reasons why he's really the best teacher in the family. Which belt is the most important? Do you believe <laughs> the white belt? It's making that decision to get in there and do it. And you know what? It's I don't I, I don't know if I can put an importance on any one belt. I think what's really important is finding a good teacher, finding somebody. Because I was talking to someone yesterday, and I'm not going to mention the name of the school that he was in. He was he was in a different state. He contacted me, and uh, he told me where he was at. And he's also in his uh, I'm guessing mid 40s. But he also had an injury. That's one of the reasons that he was calling me, because he talked about, he read my book, and it said something in there about what I've done to keep my body, you know, surgery-free and recover from injuries. So he talked, and I said, probably one of the biggest things is finding the right school, where you're not, it's not a big competition school, because after a while, most people, you know, they're getting injured. I have guys that... Yeah. 
you know, I have a, quite a few students that are in their either late 30s, early 40s, and some 50s. They don't want to be doing competitions. They just want to look at the self-defense. They want to have fun, and they want to stay in this for a while. So, mm-hmm. you know, when I hear that these guys that are going in and it's and it's go, 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 and it's constantly points and what jiu-jitsu in a lot of places has been, been likened to high school wrestling. It's for the younger athlete, mm-hmm. you know, for someone who has the physicality and the athleticism. But I'm 71. I don't have that desire or the ability to do something like that. And I've been contacted by guys that that are in their 50s that just say, you know what, I, you know, my body can't take it. I see this as a huge growing class as uh, people who, that are starting jujitsu in their 30s and their 40s now. Do you believe those people can eventually get to black belt? Yeah, absolutely. I think it depends on their their instructor, though. I think it depends on the focus of their instructor. They may not be the toughest guy, but look, after a while, I don't care how tough you are, you start getting older, you're not that tough. There's the bigger, stronger, younger guy coming in. And I've had these these kind of questions, you know, and talked to Horian in his office going, you know, when I had some much bigger guys than me that were in my class that I was teaching tapping me out and I said you know I don't think I can I don't think I should be teaching them and he would say Richard can they learn from you I said yeah they can learn a lot and they said okay that's your answer right there you're, you mm-hmm. don't have to beat everybody up but and eventually I don't care who you are you're going to get tapped out by that younger bigger stronger guy sure. but but it's not about that so I mean I teach people to do the move to do moves better than I ever executed them. I have a gift for showing them how to pull it off. A lot, I, I've even said to guys, go, can you show me how to do that? I said, I showed you how to do it, but I said, I can't do it as well as you do it. That's what a coach does. How, how did you develop this talent for teaching? In my book, I, and I tell the story, there was a, a chiropractor buddy of mine that was that I met from jiu-jitsu and he was going down he started with Horian and then Horian got busy and then Horian said you know started giving him Hoist as a teacher well Hoist was a kid and Hoist was trying to get better himself so he was my buddy Brian would go and have a class with with Hoist and Hoist would for lack of a better he, he would kind of beat him up because he was practicing to get better himself. I'm mean, not beat him up, but you know, really, you know, going like, wait a second, I'm supposed to be learning here, and and I had the same experience with Hoyce, you know. So it's I didn't enjoy the classes like I enjoyed them with Horian. So my buddy, he's just about a year or two younger than me, and he lived very close to me. And he said, Richard, he said, why don't you come over, you know, bring your gi, and you know, and he pulled his furniture out, we, and it was on his carpeting, and I, so I. I gave him a class and I was a purple belt with no formal instruction. After the class he said, man, you're a good teacher. I said, no, I'm not a teacher yet. And he said, yeah, you are. He said, you may not know it, but you are. And he said, I want to have classes with you. I mean, it was kind of like the story that you hear about, you know, Carlos and Elio. So I said, well, you know, I don't know about that. So, but, you know, he, I started teaching him and then Actually, I started teaching a semi-private class before the instructor program in, in like, 92. I started teaching these four guys that I was helping Horian out, and he got busy, and I started, I said, look, why don't I teach them? We can charge them less money. You'll get money, and I'll get a little money. So it was a win-win-win for everybody. And he said, okay. And then shortly after that, he had the instructor program. There were me and three other guys so and I did that and, and remember I was around Hori I was taught by Hori and the best teacher in the family privately for ten years. Wow. I would have a class, you know, with you know, have a class with Hickson, have a couple with Hoyce, Hoyler, who's a great teacher. You know, they're all really good. I'd have a class yeah. with the old man, get it that much, you know, easier. What can I do to be better? So it was just something that it's it's inside of me. I, I love doing it, and I want to do it as long as I, as long as they'll let me do it. 
Now, you alluded to, and I should have, I'm remiss to not uh, mention this even sooner. Uh, Richard has wrote a book. I have yet to read it. I hear wonderful things about it. It's called Worth Defending. It's on the screen for those of you who are watching now. And uh, you can get it at Amazon. I know that you guys, uh, any of your book, I'm sure distributors, whatever. And uh, you have an audiobook version of it, too. Can you give us sort of an overview synopsis in, in terms of the, the, the story of the book and uh, sort of what went into writing the book and with your partner and et cetera? What, one of the gifts that I have for teaching was I happened, and I talk about this guy briefly in my book, I went to a therapist in 1982 who was a brilliant therapist. He was an NLP therapist, Neuro Linguistic Programming. And one of the things that he told me early on is he said that when people come to you for advice or something like that, instead of saying, well, here's what you should do, you you do this and you do this and you do this. And, you know, most people have a have a polarity response. They, They go like, yeah, you start telling me what I should do and I tune out. But what he would do is he'd start telling stories. He'd ask him a question about this and he'd go, and he goes, that reminds me of a client that I had a couple years ago and he was about your age and you get so sucked into the story. And then when I started learning from this guy because this therapist, he would taught, had classes about how to do this yourself. And even when I would come to him and I would have a situation and I'd say something, and he goes, that would remind, that reminds me of uh, this person. And I knew what he was doing, but I was so enthralled into his story that I, and I knew he was going to give me advice because of certain things that I learned in therapy that are called an embedded command. You know, so you're saying something in a story saying, yes, and easy, even as I'm telling you the story, the smarter you're going to become and the happier you're going to even become right now. Right this very second, you're going to be happier. So you're, you know, and you're kind of like going, okay, and you're, and you're starting to get happy because he's, you know, what's this guy playing with me? But, anyways, so I would tell us, I would show a move, and then all of a sudden my brain would go, you know what? Elliot Gracie showed me this move back at the academy when I went in there, and all of a sudden, everybody just kind of like. Okay, he went into story mode, and I'll you know I'll spend a couple minutes going yeah when I did this and I asked him this and so they're they're so like getting out of like I have to get this right, but they wanted to hear. So I would tell the story, show the move, and that became my style. So mm-hmm. students kept saying Richard, you know you should write a book, and I went yeah 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 you're right I should write a book, and then finally. There was a student of mine that started in 2006, and I mentioned in my book, named Chris, and Chris is now a black belt. He came to me, gosh, maybe six months before I really started working on the book. He said, Richard, you should really write a book. And I said, yeah, yeah, I know I should. And he goes, Richard, you really need to write a book. He said, don't (laughs) brush me off, dude. And I'm like, whoa. And I said, okay. And, And that's when I contacted a student of mine, her and I started working on it. I'd go over to her house for that she called story time. And we spent a few months together and then it kind of plateaued. And then I was looking for, because the name of the book originally she said, she came up with the name was going to be called something like Get in the Guard, you know, yeah. which people didn't understand. So I said, I'm looking, I put out Facebook, I'm looking for the title of a book that I'm writing about my yeah. story. And so Scott reached out, turned into a phone call, and he said, you know, I'm a writer, I can help you with this. So her, we, I sent him everything that we did, and then we had about, gosh, maybe 15 hours worth of phone conversations, just asking me, interviewing me, and then taking my story and then putting it in, make, giving it life. Because I could not sit in front of a typewriter for more than five minutes without as I'm thinking about this, I didn't know where to start. And if I did start, I'd go like, oh, you know what? I got to clean my place up. And I'd walk away from, you know, I, I was too ADD. <laughs> yeah. So Scott, that's what he does. And now I have a book that's doing really well. <laughs> I'm a, I was looking through some of the Google photos, which is a fun sort of jaunt through history of Richard. Um, there's a picture of you and Helio 
and he's holding this giant oversized check. <laughs> Can you describe that moment? That was the night of UFC 1. My job was to basically, I was a gopher. They took me along. Not only was I an, an investor in the UFC, but I was also, you know, he said, okay, we're taking you with and whatever we need. So they gave me the, the check to keep in my hotel room until the night. And so I, I don't know how or where, but maybe on, maybe on the same floor, Elliot was there and I signaled them over to come in and I was with my cousin. So I had this thing and I said, hey, can we, I said, you know, I'm trying to tell him I want a picture of him. And so he just held the camera up, my cousin, and I stood next to him with the check and, and I'm like, this is the ultimate fighter. And, uh -huh. uh, you know, with my crazy mustache. And, mustache, uh, yeah, you look pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, back then it was called a porn stash. Yeah, <laughs> porn stash, yeah, for sure. But, uh, uh, and I'm glad we happen to have a camera. Yeah, you captured a, an amazing moment there. Can you tell me a little bit about 360 Defense Academy? 360 Self-Defense? Well, yeah. I was at Krav Maga for 22 years, right up until March 15th of 2020. And I was there for, gosh, since October of 97. And I met one of my students and he was a brown belt in Krav Maga, very fast, very talented stand-up fighter, and he liked jujitsu. But after a while over at Krav Maga, you know, guys would leave there. They'd have some really talented guys. They didn't know how to hold on to the people. He said, Richard, I'm thinking about starting my own school. He said, would you be interested to come up there and teach class? And I'm like, heck yeah. So he asked me and I started working for him one night a week over, I was up at Krav, I don't know, another, I, I don't know, I was teaching four other classes or five other classes a week there, and then mm. at Ricky's place, and then Krav had to shut, everything shut down. But after a while, right. he said, hey, would you like to teach? And I'm like, yeah, I would like to teach. He said, okay, come in. I probably shouldn't admit to this because, you know, we were shut down, but I, I don't think they're going to come out after anybody this you know, it's not like we committed a capital offense. But so I was teaching for him. It's a small little place over by LAX. And it's a nice bunch of guys, really good attitude. And the jujitsu program is, is growing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've had a couple guys that were students that, that came with me. You know, because when, when I first went there, we had, gosh, maybe one blue belt and the rest white belts. One of the guys that I used to teach who's a purple belt came in. The guy that was the blue belt when he came over there is now a purple belt. There were a couple other purple belts that I used to teach. One of them came with me and the other guy was teaching at or was learning at a different school. And we had talked and he heard more about me and he left his school to come over and train with me. So now we have four purple belts, a handful of blue belts and white belts coming in. So and it's a really good atmosphere of learning, and the and like I said, we're building. So I really like what Ricky's done over at three six. So Richard, uh, did you ever have an academy? And can you tell me the story of that? I kind of got, for lack of a better term, got kicked out of the Gracie Academy. I was teaching there for three years, and Hori and I had a falling out. As I left there, I didn't know what I was going to do. And one of my students from Gracie Academy called me up and said, hey, what are you doing? He said, what are you doing? I said, right now, nothing. He says, well, why don't we open a school? And I said, uh, well, you know, just money, because, you know, it's more than just getting a loan from the bank. And I didn't have the name, and I didn't want to be by myself to teach. So he said, look, let's get you and Lowell. You know, Lowell was a buddy of mine who we were both brown belts at this time, and we became good good buddies so this one guy said look he says I got the money you guys bring the talent so we opened Beverly Hills Jiu-Jitsu you know that most people don't know about because they've heard of Beverly Hills Jiu-Jitsu but we didn't put anything in writing and I got you know Lowell ended up walking away because we had the first hundred dollars a month unlimited classes and so I mean just to, to get that and we got 50 guys right away but you do the math. Wow. It's not a lot of, I mean, $5,000 a month when your rent is got to be back then in Beverly Hills had to be at least, you know, between two and $3,000.
Right. Not a lot of money yeah. left over. And, and I was I was getting uh, unemployment, and Lowell was he was you know I think he was married, and he just like went you know what I I can't support myself. You know we were doing we do private classes, and so we both ended up walking away, and uh, and I was kind of pushed out, and right. then I went like wait a second, and I just realized. For me to open a school, it's like, I don't want the headache. I mean, I see what other guys have done, and if I was going to do it, I would go into an existing academy, maybe a karate academy or something, and just say, look, I'd like to teach jujitsu here because they have the business license. They don't have to do anything extra except get some mats for the floor. But I didn't want to do that because of the responsibility. Your thoughts on what makes a great jujitsu student? Someone who comes in that just wants to learn that will listen to what the teacher has to say and trust trust the process because if you ask any of my students what word what one word am i constantly saying over and over again they will tell you it's relax because mm. when you are learning a move if you're tense and you're trying to use power with it you're not going to get the essence you're not going to be able to feel what the other person's doing it's like right. you, if you're so laser focused on yourself, then it's like a person who's self-conscious. They can't look at that person and look for verbal cues, look for any other nonverbal communication to see if they're uncomfortable or whatever it is. So just the process, just coming with an open slate. And that's one of the reasons why I really like teaching kids and women, because they don't have like you know you get a big stronger guy they have gifts and they want to test themselves they want to show with their power you you do it you show them a choke and they're like ready to break your neck and i'm going like wait a second you don't i said look i'll choke you and you won't even feel my choke but you have to be ready to tap because the blood's going to stop going to the brain but i won't crank your neck so it's just someone who comes in with an open mind that just really has that and wanting to learn but like Horian said, there's no such thing as a bad student. It's There's only good and bad teachers. So that's why I said before, you know, you have to find the right school for you. So touching upon that, conversely, what makes a great teacher? I think somebody who puts their students, their focuses on their students and how much he can help them learn. Can you tell me a time that you saw something in jiu-jitsu that changed your the direction of your teaching or your outlook or your game yeah when i looked in the mirror one day and went like wow i'm getting old like when i first started i mean it's like i'd go in i'd go in there and whatever mix it up the guy was bigger i just i'd still do it without really you know i might be scared but i'd just still do the move i'd still say okay well maybe he'll beat me but i'd still do it then after about close to 10 years in i started noticing the guys were coming in they were still bigger and stronger and younger and they would try to force moves and i noticed that my shoulders because they try to give me an arm like they'd be pulling on the arm and i just mm -hmm. have to use my body but still as they're doing that my technique wasn't completely spot on so i i was having problems like recovering so then mm -hmm. i started saying okay well, i'm going to be really selective who i choose to spar with then I got into my 40s, and I just got even more selective. And then I stopped doing, like, when I got into my 50s, like, I'd go into a class. This is in Krav Maga. It was kind of like a testing ground all over again, because Krav Maga was a very aggressive art. And I would come in, and I'd tell these guys to relax, and I'd show a move, and, they'd, and the person would say, well, Richard, what if the guy does this? And, you know, and then I'd put myself down with this guy who was got maybe 80 pounds on me just to show that it's possible and I go like what am I doing this for why am I putting myself in the line of fire when I when I'm gonna risk getting hurt so I kinda you know walk further and further away from that just to be more careful because I wanted to preserve my body and then into my 60s it became more of that but then even teaching like when I was a young guy in my 20s, even early 30s, when someone would get in my guard, I didn't think much of letting them stacking me up because I was flexible and I would shoot for an arm lock or a triangle and I'd spin underneath them. 
but it's not good to spin on the base of your your neck there yeah yeah, and your neck so i'll tell guys i said look avoid getting stacked up you do not want to play that game i know when you're young you don't think about it because i didn't think about it but i said i guarantee you that the kind of injury that i have i see other people have mostly in part of being stacked up you know i mean it's a, it's a it's a hard thing to practice if you're constantly being stacked up like that or constantly training hard it's it's yeah. hard on your joints so i've adapted the way that i teach you know i say look if you want to if you want to do it and we're you know we're helping the guys to become more careful and more focused on helping each other and my guys hold their own with other with other you know when they go to other schools you know it's not like we're just only focusing on one thing we are majorly focused but foundational jujitsu is just that it's foundational you know i used to be very concerned when i was in a krav maga school for a while and then after a while because we only had a certain limited amount of classes a few guys would leave and they'd go to jujitsu schools and they would come back and i would always kind of be a little nervous like oh gosh these guys have been gone for two years they're going to come back and eat all my guys up you know with all their new techniques from a different school and that didn't happen. It didn't happen at all. It wasn't even close to that. So I just mm-hmm. realized that because of the teaching that I was given and basic fundamentals, fun, good fundamentals are, they go across the board. I, I wonder if making basics and fundamentals as a, saying them in a, an equivalent term is almost does it a disservice over time. Because it somehow almost denigrates fundamentals in a way, you know, the importance of them. People often mention Hodger Gracie's cross-collar choke, but there's a lot of very intricate things going on. You know, he has improved upon the cross-collar choke, and there's a million different things going on in terms of mastering things like uh, pressure, weight distribution, things, you, you know, hand placement, things you know all about. And these are incredibly intricate things that over years can improve. He, he hasn't improved the cross-collar choke. He's just mastered the cross-collar choke. How to get it, like the position he's into. I mean, all that stuff requires practice and timing and over and over and over again. Because if you ever watch the inaction, I mean, Hajer is a perfect example in a competition. But looking back... Every time Horian fought anybody, I don't think I ever saw him catch anybody in an arm lock. He always, if they had a guillotine, he caught him in a cross collar. They didn't have a guillotine, he caught him in either a guillotine or a rear naked choke. He wanted to only choke people, and he was a master at it. I mean, there no one teaches the choke better than Horian does, that I've seen. And his father, that was his father's go-to, cross collar choke. I mean, his, I mean, his father, you know, tell story. I mean, his wrists, or you know. My, see, my wrist would be like, his wrists were like, you know, a half an inch wider. They, <laughs> Horian would tell me he'd sometimes take a tree trunk, wrap a towel around him and just... Wow. You know, so the power of his choke is one thing. And then the timing and, and that was Horian. I mean, he, could, he was very smooth at it, you know. So he took it at one level and Hajer took that same thing and mastered it. Because what does he do? He passes the guard... Side control, mounts, chokes. Basic, fundamental. Let's talk about a little bit like the evolution of jujitsu learning and teaching through the years that you've seen, and we've many of us have seen when it went to books, you know, where you had to learn, you could learn jujitsu through books, you could learn sort of jujitsu through magazines, and then we got to VHS. We got to DVDs, now we're doing online streaming, and now we have even uh, online video studies are offered, uh, remote online coaching, in addition to perhaps the academy that you're at, remote things like strength training and PT training. What's that looked like to you? Well, I think it's all great. The first ones who I think that really did, I mean, Horian had the, you know, the VHS, and then Henzo and, and a, a uh, guy named Craig Kukuk, with I think he was one of the first, if not the first black belt, an American black belt, because he got it from, I think, Hoyler sometime in the early 90s. 
but you know, so they had a VHS. Him and Hoyler. I mean, him and Henzo. And then Horian and Hoyce had their thing, and then they did a little thing, a little stint with a CD-ROM that lasted maybe a year. But just the technology got better and better and better. You know, right. one different angles. And when I see what the boys have done over at Grace University and what the, how they've expanded, and you know, they took a lot of flack for this. Yeah. Look, there's no substitute for a person coming to me for a class or you know a, a teacher for a private class then you right. have a group class but if you're not near a school or if you want something to as an addition to your learning this is a, as good as it gets online yeah it's not going to yeah. be like being in front of somebody to do it but when you don't have anything else you know why not you know and the same guys that gave him flack now are doing their own online stuff because they realize that one they can make a little extra money and it is effective if it's if it's done right. Right. I, it seems like for the younger generation, I don't think they understand the amount of vitriol. Uh, we're talking about Henner probably, right, that they took. I think the kids now would probably like just scratch in disbelief of like, you know, why. I guess if you're early on in anything, you're going to you're going to take all the arrows. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's it's just gotten better and better. I mean, it, it's. And, and people have asked me, they said, Richard, when are you going to come up with content? And uh, eventually, uh, I'll probably put something out there. But I guess what I think is there's so much content. Because since the book, people have contacted me and for private classes, black belts, brown belts, purple belts. And most of the time when they come to teach me, I take, I see their basic moves. The triangle, the rear naked choke, the collar choke, the kimura. And I'll have them show me what, how they do it, how they explain it, and I always take what they showed me and make it better. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I've had guys just sit there and go like, whoa. You know, because I would show them something, and at me telling you this, they'd say, you know, I'd say, well, I, I'm pretty technical myself, you know. But I had a, more than one guy, but there's a guy who starred with me in 95. He started the Gracie Academy. He was drawn to me, so I was his primary teacher. When I left in 96, and this guy was a kid, maybe maybe back then was 20 years old, he followed me to Beverly Hills, and then I wasn't at Beverly Hills too long, and then we lost touch. And when he contacted me three years ago, he said, look, he said, uh, I remember you from the classes, at the Gracie Academy, and I want to know where you're at. And he's a black belt now, and he's been to about eight different schools. Wow. And, and he was at Paragon now in Central California. So he contacted me and he says, I'd like to have a private with you. And I said, well, great. And I said, look, I'm not going to spar with you. You're 45 years old and you're 175 and I'm 140. <laughs> you know, he says, no, I don't want to spar with you. He says, I just want, I want you to show me the same way you showed me when I was your student, I just, you know, they're interested in becoming teachers now. Right, right. And they are, they're, they're doing, they, they take a class, but they're not really a polished teacher. They, someone showed them and they just showed them the best they can. So he would come over and take a private with me and I would show him some basic stuff and he would be blown away like, oh my gosh, I, I didn't know that. Or I didn't remember that from before. Right. So. I started doing that when other guys would come to teach me and they'd do to have the same kind of mentality like, whoa, uh, really that, that little extra adjustment that you're doing right there makes the difference. So basically my, my polishing has to do with teaching basics. And I, like right. I, this one purple belt who I showed the same move and he was kind of blown away. He said he wants to help me market to have teachers that are black belts come in just to learn from me. Same with this other black belt and he said, look, people, they, they should really come in and learn because you know how to teach. You know how to teach the teachers. It's one thing to teach them. It's another thing to bring it across on a video because yeah. jujitsu, to really get that finesse has to be felt. You have yeah. to feel what that other person's doing. You can show a certain amount, but when you have that experience, nothing is like that experiential one-on-one. -on -one. There's a close second, so the reason I haven't done it is just because I don't know how I'm going to do it. And I said, if I do it, I want to do it right. And I have people that want to help me, but it's still, 
you know, I, I keep thinking the logistics of it. You know, I worry about this perfectionist, that it's going to delay this stuff too much. You know, I was speaking with uh, Henry Aiken some time back. He's uh, one of the Hickson's first uh, black belts. And, you know, both of you sound similar in that I know that you put a hef- heavy emphasis on self-defense in terms of jujitsu at its foundation, right? And that there's been a concern among some of the elder statesmen that this type of viewpoint framework has been or is fading in a way you know it is because of the because of the sport perspective or or whatever it may be but what i'm finding is that it's important to document you guys you know your jujitsu and what you know so that the future generations have something because uh they just need that and the landscape is so flooded with another viewpoint that it's important to have that balance yeah that's that's a very good uh, point so what are you telling me so do it richard (laughs) (laughs) make it happen (laughs) okay okay well one of the things i want to know is can you tell me a time when you considered quitting and why I did walk away from it in the early 80s. I walked away from it for a few months just because after me, you know, becoming Horian's roommate and eating, I mean, I did the Gracie diet. I mean, it's hard to live with somebody and not, you know, because I was, I wanted to change and I just would have meals with him. And then I got interested in health. My focus went from, you know, like the best pot or finding some good cocaine to like finding some good quality produce and you know quality food so i met a guy in the early 80s by the name of harvey diamond and him and his wife marilyn wrote a book probably the largest best-selling diet book in the mid 80s 85 i think it was called fit for life i went to he had a seminar called the diamond method and when i first saw him he was in the early 80s and he had like i don't know 75 or 100 people and he put a contact number out and i contacted him and i said look i'd like to to take this further i want to you know so he said i'm having a class very informal class at his house and me and three or four other guys went to study with harvey so i when i studied with him he says look they have also a program where you can it's advanced studies and you you're going to be, you know, one, I wanted to, they said, for health, learning to fast. So I mm. went to a fasting place, and then it, they said, look, you can also go to this other place. So I kind of walked away from it for, gosh, probably a good nine months. And then Horian called me up and said, hey, you know, do you want to? Where are you at? Yeah, where are you at? So I came back. But I realized once I started going back in there, I wanted to do jujitsu again. So that was the, other than that, I really never wanted to quit. I, there are a few things that you've mentioned in the show where you, you mentioned diet, you mentioned uh, NLP, you mentioned, you know, um, sort of therapy in a way and jujitsu. Was this just like a inflection point in your life when you did, you went like self-improvement, so to speak? Well, and why? What, when I was doing drugs, you know, anyone who does drugs on a regular basis, you can't really like yourself because no one looks at themselves and sees that person who's 100 pounds overweight going, oh yeah, I look good. Feel good for yourself. I mean, learn how to develop your head so you can have a goal saying, what can I do to become a healthier person now? By the way, that's an embedded command. What (laughs) what can I do to become a healthy, right this very moment? And when I was doing drugs, I went to therapy and therapy, the therapist basically told me why I wasn't leaving the fast food business because he told me I was afraid and I focused on fear for a long time. And then I happened to be watching TV one morning as I was sitting down smoking a joint. Oh yeah, the guy says, how easy you can wipe fear out of your life. This this hmm. was Dr. Dossi, the NLP therapist. So I called him up after going to see him once, one two hour appointment after being in therapy for two years and group therapy for a year, I went back to the next group therapy went in i said guys thank you very much i'm done just seeing this guy one time because he gave me outcome things instead of saying why am i the way i am and if you ask yourself a question like that you look unconsciously and consciously for an answer asking any question that's what you do you look for that answer so if you ask yourself a better question like what's it going to take to change how can i achieve what i want to achieve 
Start asking yourself those questions so you can start unconsciously and consciously look for a better answer. And that's what Dr. Dossie helped me to do more of is how can I, what can I do to improve my situation? It became that kind of a thing. And Horian was doing that. He was replacing, instead of saying, oh, you can't eat a Twix candy bar anymore, Richard, or you can't eat this or you can't eat that. It was just like, eat meals with me. Focus on the good stuff. Let the bad stuff take care of itself. Forgive yourself. And Dr. Dossie spent time with me. Forgive yourself if you screw up. If I smoke a joint or if I have a piece of chocolate cake or a Twix candy bar, it's okay. Just what am I going to do next? And that's the hardest thing is we have to learn how to let it go. Forgive yourself, let it go, and give the affirmation of I love you and you're worth it. And I'm talking about looking at yourself in the mirror saying you're worth it and change that. And forgiveness, it, it's the hardest thing. It's easy for people to say, oh, I forgive you. If you, you, know, you wronged me, if I, if I thought you did. But to forgive yourself, it's like we're, we're so hypercritical of our own self. You know, and, and I hear it all the time. People say, you know, because I don't eat bad food of any kind and they eat something and they go, yeah, I know I shouldn't eat this. And I said, mm. I said, don't, don't shit on yourself or anyone else. Don't shit on me, don't shit on yourself. It's like you're doing it. Okay, what's done is done. What you could do next time is you might want to take a, make a better choice. But shooting makes you wrong and you're criticizing yourself and no one, if I were to tell you if you did something, I said, hey man, you shouldn't have done that. You don't feel good about that. So all these things that I learned how to do is to improve. And, and the book talks a lot about this. People have contacted me because it's a self-help book. It's a book about jiu-jitsu. It's a book about alternative health. So that's kind of like my focus. So that book, again, is called Worth Defending, everyone. Worth Defending. Available at all the... Uh... Uh, great. How Gracie Jiu-Jitsu Saved My Life. There you go. And you can find it at richardbressler.com or Amazon. Richard Bressler. Richard, can you tell us, uh, how'd you learn to tie your belt? <laughs> Horian shop taught me. <laughs> uh, you know what? I see these guys do the fancy stuff. I look at it, and it stays. it stays. When they do it, it stays like that. But one over, the other one over, you know. If it comes undone, I tighten it up. A lot of people compare jujitsu to chess. They like to make that analogy all the time. Is there a particular analogy that you like to compare it to? Jujitsu is chess. Is that how you see it? Yeah, absolutely. It's even the older you get. I mean, stuff has, has turned into a, like I said, it's a high school wrestling kind of mentality because it's physicality. There's techniques, mm -hmm. but there's also a lot of physicality and I don't have the desire or the testosterone <laughs> for me to to do that and I often tell people too, like how many wrestling clubs do you see on the corner yeah people would ask me you know when they're because you know one of the things I would say is relax and they say how do you relax when you got somebody who's just attacking, attacking, attacking? I said, stop attacking back. Defend. And I said, you know, when I get someone's guard and they put the hand in here, a lot of guys, what they do is they take the hand and they'll rip it away. If you have 40 pounds on me or so, and I take your hand and try to pull it off, sometimes it's not coming. And I invite everybody to do this when I'm in their guard. So one of the things, as soon as they put that right away, I put both hands on their other hand, on their wrist and on their arm. And I say, okay, choke me. Mm -hmm. You know, and they have to free this. And a lot of times they're using the other hand to free it. So they pull the hand out to free it. And I go, okay, problem solved. And I just mm -hmm. play with that. And, and probably the last time that I really mixed it up with somebody probably about 15 years ago, I was in my mid-50s, I had a guy who was a student over at Krav Maga. He came from NYU, wrestled there for four years, one of the top guys, 5'6", 150 pounds. We weighed the same, but he was 30-some-odd years younger than me. And he was a top-notch wrestler. I'm 55. I real, you know, I was playing around. So they said, Richard, this guy never gets tired. Wrestlers are the best conditioned athletes. 
and he was 21 years old. So they said, how do you relax with him? So I, come on. So I, I went with the guy for about, oh, maybe three minutes or so. And he was all over me, trying to attack this. And all I was doing is sitting back, got, got inside control, went to mount, but I really know the elbow escape very well. And all he knew was wrestling. So I would defend. Every single time he would try to mount, I would defend. He couldn't do anything. I didn't tap him, but that's not the important thing. He couldn't touch me. So I said, look, all I'm doing is doing my moves to defend what he's doing. I want to survive against a guy who has, who's 30 years, 30 plus years my junior. If I can survive someone like that, I'm happy. So mm -hmm. they say, how do you relax? Learn the technique. Study the technique. Focus on relaxing. What's the worst that's going to happen? You'll get tapped. Go back and do it again. You know, uh, hell, I mean, how many times did I get tapped? A lot. A lot. Can you tell us about um, the evolution of your game and what do you wish you were better at? Jiu-jitsu. You know, all I, I become a very, you know, very defensive. You know, one of the things that I hear hit on and and I know Henner talked. Did you do you know who John Boyd was? John no, Boyd exactly. was a black belt over. He was. We were about the same age. He he died about five years ago. After John got his black belt, he went into Henner's office and he said, you know, said I don't I, I don't think I deserve the black belt anymore. You know because there's this guy who maybe uh, you know bigger, younger, maybe even blue belt or purple. And he said I can't tap the guy. And so Henner said, look. When you, for every, basically every 10 years, you kind of like, you lose your effectiveness. This is not an absolute, it's a general rule. 10 mm -hmm. pounds, mm -hmm. if you're learning the same thing, you're gonna, I'm 140 pounds and I'm 71. So <laughs> my focus is on defending myself. If people attack, I can defend most people, but if I start mixing it up with them and start attacking them, that's where my timing is way off. But I can, mm. I can sit back and defend that. And my focus has been on survival. Hiran said this about Andre Galval in his match at Metamorse. He said, if I fought his game, good chance I would have gotten caught or lost. But he said, right. I could play my game and survive the whole time. And he never was in danger with Andre Galval. And people have said to me that, you know, that guys say, oh, Richard, he just defended. And I says, oh yeah, you go and try to defend against a world champ and see how long you last. Everybody is, it's so easy to sit back and be a critic, but I've shared the mat with the best. And I mean, hit on Gracie, Chris Saunders, who is Hickson's first black belt. When he rolled with hit on about, I don't know, 10 years ago, I had a class with him. And I had a class with hit on before that, after hit on gotten really good, and I felt like a white belt. And then, you know, but I was older. Chris is now maybe 60, and this was when he was 50, and he'd been a black belt for at least, I don't know, 15 years from Hickson at the time. And hit on called him up out of the blue and says, hey, why don't you come by for a class? And he, Chris calls me up and he says, Richard, he said, I felt like a freaking white belt with this kid. He just, you know, so it just it shows the evolution and as we age we just don't have that so focus on what you're good at focus on what is the easiest thing to do stay relaxed and defend you know i i've demonstrated over and over i had a white belt come in a buddy a student of mine who's now a purple but when he was blue a couple years ago this guy came in who was in a competition school and my guy tried to keep up with him, tried to attack as he was attacking. He almost got caught. He looks at me and I just kind of said, you know, I just gave him like, relax, relax. Just, just roll with him. Don't be so aggressive. And he finally tired the guy out and he ended up tapping him. You know, in other words, you're either going to be manipulated or influenced or you're going to do the influencing. It's manipulation or the manipulator or influence influencer, depending on what you want to call it. The stronger you are in your beliefs and your core knowledge, you can suck someone into your game. If you don't have that strong innate thing, you'll play their game. I want people to play my game. And that's one of the reasons why people have a hard time relaxing because they haven't done it long enough. They get with somebody who's trying to take their head off 
and they go into fight mode and they revert back to what they have. So, Richard, where can the listener get more information about you and everything that you got going on? Well, they can go to richardbressler.com. My Instagram, I think, is if you just put Richard Bressler, I think it's Richard Dash or Richard underscore Bressler. And Facebook, it's it's Richard Bressler. I also have a, a YouTube page that I'm working on. And by the way, I will be, and I'm planning on doing this, don't know exactly when it's going to happen. I'm going to become a co-host of a podcast coming in the next... Uh, in the future. Yeah, in the very near future. So we will leave all the links in the show notes for all of you to reach out to Richard. And uh, don't forget to get his book, Worth Defending, on uh, all the... Wherever you buy books, yeah, Worth Defending. Amazon. Amazon's the only place you can get it. We appreciate you all and join us next time. And Richard, thank you so much for your time. It really was an honor and a, such a joy to speak with you. Thank you. Pleasure is mine. Awesome. See you guys next time.